If you guys can grab a seat, uh, welcome once again. I'll say a big welcome to everyone. My name is Jason, one of the pastors here at Well, as well at Artisan. And just ask a rhetorical question to start us out here. How many people here, and you can raise hands if you feel like it, have had a day where you just didn't want to get out of bed? Is there... Now, I'm not going to say anything, but there's a lot more people here tonight than there was here this morning. <laughs> and, and I'm not saying those are connected, but I know when I looked out the window this morning and thought to myself, I don't think I'll go today. And then I remembered, I'm one of the pastors and I'm preaching. And I'm like, oh, guess I can't just pull the covers over my head. But we've all had those times when it would just be so comforting or easier, less fearful whatever the cause, to just, to just stay in bed, to not get up and, uh, and let the world kind of pass us by for a while. Well, as we're entering the second week of our series, of this winter journey, this theme of, of whether or not we're going to get up, whether we're going to wake up or not, uh, comes into focus a bit. And we've been doing something really interesting, we started this last week, where we're looking at this season through the eyes of John the Baptist, but not the John the Baptist out in the wilderness baptizing people, not the John the Baptist, you know, preaching that the kingdom of God is, is about to break on the scene, not the John the Baptist baptizing his cousin Jesus, but the John the Baptist who sits in prison for having stood up to a corrupt and unjust rule the Herod that Rome had put in place as puppet king or ruler over the Jewish people. And here John finds himself in prison. And his expectations for what God was doing in the world are severely challenged. And so he sends a few of his followers, his own disciples, to go ask Jesus this question, which really shapes our entire series uh, going towards Christmas. And the question is, are you the one who is to come? Or are we to wait for another? It's a question that, whether you've been a Christian for years, whether you're just exploring faith for the first time, whether you've gone away and you're wondering if you want to come back or not, it's a question we all should answer. Is Jesus the one who is to come? Or are we to wait for another? Because if we are to wait for another, then there's really no problem with you know, hitting that snooze button again, right? Just kind of fluffing the pillow. You know, maybe getting the remote. It's not like we can't do some other things. But, or just pull the covers over our heads. And if anyone could make a case for, for not getting up, it would be John as he sat there in prison. In fact, for him to get up would just then mean he had to get back down again because there was nowhere for him to go. He's imprisoned. But I wonder, what might be going through his mind as he sits there in the dark and in the cold, his expectations for what God is doing in question, maybe pulling his knees close to his chest to stay warm, and then remembering some of God's word. Because at least in my mind, I imagine John has memorized great swaths of scripture. That would be very common, especially as a prophet of God. I bet 
he's memorized some of the great, you know, old-time prophets, you know, the classics, you know, like Isaiah, that we use for our call to worship. And so I wonder if, as John was sitting there waiting for word to come back on what Jesus' response would be, if some of these passages would come to mind, if they'd begin to shape his understanding of whether the world's going to wake up or not. And so in Isaiah chapter 2, you can flip there in your Bibles if you want. It's Isaiah chapter 2. I can imagine that this might be one of those passages that would come to John, that might even comfort him or challenge him. And because he'd hidden God's word in his heart, they were available to him. So here's, here's how this starts out. It says in Isaiah chapter 2, I will pick it up in verse 2, that there's this future, there's something coming. And it says, in days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And shall be raised above the hills, and all the nations shall stream to it. And I imagine John, as that comes to mind, and the picture there is of Jerusalem, which is on a raised area, and that somehow, spiritually or metaphorically, it, it then towers above everything else. And here he sits, imprisoned by the Roman Empire, his people not free, his city occupied, and yet God's word is saying, Something's going to change. And I can imagine asking himself, what could God possibly raise up high enough that the entire world would pay attention? It says, it says all nations, not just the Jewish people, not just the nearby Roman people, the Gentiles, the Jews, people from everywhere. Then Isaiah goes on to say in verse 3, And many peoples from all walks of life, all ethnicities, all cultures, all backgrounds, many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and we may walk in his paths. And the picture there is of people who are so enthused and alive, fully awake, if you will, and going somewhere on this journey that they then invite others to come with them. And unlike the popular picture of what God was going to do, which even John himself, as he asked that question of Jesus, are you the one who is to come or are we to wait for another? He may have had in mind this this mighty conqueror, this political ruler who would come in, wipe out the Roman rule, and establish Jerusalem as the kingdom of kingdoms. And yet, the picture of this future that God paints is not one of God's kingdom coming by force and coercion, but it seems that people are freely going, and in fact, are inviting others to come along. There's no edge of a Roman sword. There's no being moved along at the point of a spear. And there's something really unique where it says that the Lord, that he will be the one teaching 
and showing us the way to walk in his paths. It will no longer be prophets, even like John, or written words, but that somehow the Lord himself will come on the scene. And imagine that being juxtaposed, put up against his question. Is Jesus the one who is to come? Or are we to wait for another? And here's what it would look like. And this may be just enough to wake up a tired world. In verse 4 of Isaiah chapter 2, it says of this Lord that he shall judge between the nations. Oh, finally, some judgment, right? Now it's, God's going to get serious and take care of some of these problems. Then it says he shall arbitrate for many peoples. That's not talking about like two, three, or four people. It's peoples for the Jewish people, for the Roman people, the Greek, the, the barbarians, the upper class. That somehow God's going to be concerned with everyone. And then here's the picture. It says they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks used to harvest grapes. And that nation shall not lift up sword against nation and neither shall they learn war anymore. And I wonder if John was remembering these words, if he began to wake up a little bit, that maybe what God was going to do in the world, and possibly through this Jesus, was going to be different. That it wouldn't be just changing one conqueror for another. It wouldn't be exchanging one Caesar for our own personal Caesar. It just has to be called Jesus. Because then it finishes in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 5, where it says, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And so that brings us to that decision moment, in a sense. As we talked about last week, you know, it's darkest before the dawn, but there is some hope. But we have no control over when dawn actually happens, right? Whether we there's intervene or not, the sun's going to rise or set in its time. The earth will spin on its axis whether we get out of bed or not. And the same is true for how God acts in human history. How we can cry out to him, we can pray, but it'll happen in his timing. But when that dawn finally breaks, you can kind of look out the window and see the day is coming, then it falls on us to make a decision, to have a response. And that's what I want to talk about real briefly tonight, whether we're going to get up or not. And once we're up, are we going to go anywhere? And so let me ask you this, on this theme of getting up. Everyone here admitted that there's days when you don't want to get out of bed. So think for a moment, what are some of the reasons? Just in a very literal fashion, what are some of the reasons that, that keep us in bed? from not wanting to go and face the day. And I, I bet we can think of all different categories, some positive, many negative. But then make the analogy to us getting up if God calls us, if this journey that we're talking about, finding our way to Christmas, this winter journey is something we're called to, to be on, what might keep us from getting out of bed? I think there's maybe four areas. You can think of some others if you want. But I think one of them 
could just be ignorance, right? Perhaps through no fault of our own, though sometimes we are rather proactively ignorant, if you will. But perhaps we just don't know that there's a journey we're supposed to be on, that no one's told us, that no one's described this life that Christ calls us to. In fact, scriptures are very clear that apart from God's grace breaking through, it's as though there's a veil over us that, that we just don't know until he begins to show us that there's more that we're being called to. So it may be ignorance. So that might be a reason that we think being bedridden is just our lot in life. Ignorance doesn't tend to be my problem. The second one sometimes is, though, where we know that we're supposed to get up and do something with our lives, but we're lazy, right? It just is so easy to not do the hard work. And if we're honest, for a lot of us, the reason we don't take on the challenges is not because they're so big, but just because they take effort. So ignorance, lazy, sounds like a dad up here, you're ignorant, you're lazy, no. It gets better though. Because sometimes it's neither of those either. We know we're supposed to get up. In fact, we'd really like to, but we're fearful. Sometimes fear keeps us from getting up. If you remember back to your childhood, maybe, it still might be going on for some of you, but... But for some reason, every kid knew. It was like there's a secret kid information network that we all knew the rules about, about how to be safe. As long as you were fully covered by the blanket, you know, the monsters couldn't get you. But God help you if somewhere in the middle of the night, just a foot slipped out, because then you'd be gone, right? <laughs> and then in an emergency, if you, if you at least have time to you hear the noise, you know, the scratching of the claws under the bed. Hope the camera's not taking this down to the kids. Um, you could pull the covers over your head. And then you'd be protected, right? Then there'd be nothing to fear. Or at least the things you fear couldn't get you. And sometimes that's our posture. As God calls us to something greater than what we are or what we've done, that we're fearful. That we want to pull the covers over our head. Or apart from God, we're fearful of, of some pretty serious stuff. There are monsters in the world, many of them created by us humans. And then there's the monsters of those spiritual forces that, at least for a season, have some influence. They want to stand against what God does. And whatever the fear is, we just want to pull the cover over our heads. But if there really are monsters out there, especially those spiritual dark forces, I imagine there's nothing that they like better than for people to not get up. It's one less person to worry about that's gonna make a difference in the world. It's one less image bearer of God who's gonna be out there getting stuff done. But it's real. Fear can keep us from getting up. 
But then the final one, I want to make sure I mention. Because there could be a sense of, of again, the dad lecturing. Why are you so ignorant, lazy, and scared? You know, it's not always real helpful. In fact, it could be kind of cruel to say that to someone who can't get up. And so sometimes what keeps us from getting up is that there's damage. Now, it may be self-inflicted damage. And I suppose then we're to blame. But once it's inflicted, it's not like you can do something about it. Or maybe it's damage that comes from outside forces, the family we're born into, the disease that's ravaging our body, the, uh, the, the time in history, what's going on in the world. Damage. Just sin itself. Damaging us. And it would be cruel. Just sort of yell louder or shake harder someone and say, get up. When there's damage. And if that was what Jesus called people to do, damage people and just said, get up. And then if they didn't, he walked away. That would be cruel. But did Jesus ever ask anyone to get up who was damaged? Remember the guy who came through the roof, paralyzed on the mat? Jesus said, get up. And then he also let him, helped him walk. He also forgave his sins. Or Jairus' daughter who died because the crowds kept Jesus from getting there in time to heal her sickness. And there she is dead. And he says, get up. And he brings her back to life. Or his best friend Lazarus, who because of the pressure and the busyness and the press of the crowds for ministry, kept Jesus from reaching Lazarus for days so that he was already buried and in a tomb. As far as everyone's concerned, the damage, irreparable. And he said, get up. And so it's, it's good to know that Jesus isn't cruel when he tells us to get up, but that he enables us to do it. And in fact, we'll see in the coming weeks that the question John was asking, are you the one who is to come or are we to wait for another? Jesus will answer that in part by describing what he's doing. And the larger part of what he's doing is telling people who are damaged to get up and enabling them to do that. And so getting up. Once the dawn breaks, we realize that Christ is calling us to, uh, to live a life more fully. We respond. But getting up isn't enough. Just getting up doesn't get us going anywhere. You know, just getting up in the morning. And imagine just spending the whole day getting ready. And then 5.30 rolls around and you're still just trying to get everything just right. You've never actually gone outside the house. So it's one thing to have a bedridden faith. It's not a big improvement to spend your entire faith in your pajamas either. You know? Neither one of those you know, are real good for a long time. And so what are the things that keep us from actually starting this journey? Assuming that we do eventually get up. What slows us down or burdens us or distracts us on that path? 
I think there's a few things that are, that are kind of obvious, that some of those burdens, those distractions, oh, it could be things like you know, unhealthy relationships that, that God needs to do something in the midst of or we need to step back from for a while. It may be that our priorities are out of whack and, and we have competing directions and therefore we get lost and end up in the ditch a lot or never even get out the door. Or we've, we've gotten up, but we're not getting good directions because we never turn to God's word. We don't communicate to God in prayer. We don't join our lives together with you know, a band of fellow travelers that collectively kind of stay on the path. Or the burden of unforgiven sin, not really unburdening all those things to Christ. I think those are part of it. But I don't think that's the biggest problem for us actually traveling once we get up. I think it's that thing I mentioned briefly of just always preparing yet never going. Um, I was just thinking the other day, I've been in pastoral ministry for 15 years, roughly. And one of the things I've seen time and again in all my various roles, I started out as a youth pastor and young adult pastor. In fact, Scott Austin, he was a 16-year-old student in, in the first, uh, as I was his youth pastor. It explains a lot. Uh, a lot. Uh, it raises other questions as well. Uh, in that role as, a, as an intern at a church, as a senior pastor, as a church planter, the thing that I've seen happen time and again is those Christians that are awake, oh, they're up, but they never go anywhere. They never put one foot in front of the other and actually start on some journey. And again, the picture is just a, sort of a, a crazy person, you know, with you know, 20, 30 cats in their pajamas, ordered everything on eBay and Amazon, you know, pizzas delivered, they never leave the house. We would not think that was healthy in everyday life. Why do we put up with it in our faith? Why do we put up with it in our churches? It's a bit creepy when you start to think about it. To get up, but never actually go anywhere. And sometimes, as pastors and as a church community, we can be guilty of, of giving people the impression that you're just not quite ready, right? You've got this slate of classes you need to take. There's some seminars, uh, you know, you need to get certified. You know, I don't know. You're just a kid. You're just a teenager. Oh, you, you just had a baby. You've got to take time at home. You're a student in college. You start your first job, you know, and we just go on and on. I can go really fast here, but... That, that would be cruel to you. Uh, and I've heard the same excuse at every stage of life used again and again for why someone doesn't actually get going in their faith. You know, you know once the kids are in school, well, school's really busy. Once, uh, you know, once they're teenagers, they're a little more you know, self-sufficient. Ah, oh, I got teenagers now. I can't possibly... You know, you know, maybe once they're out of the house, I'm an empty nester, except, well, now I'm having my midlife crisis. I don't know which color red sports car to get, and, and I've got to change careers, and that's, 
That's just a joke for the slightly older than me. Uh, I got mine coming in like six years. I'm scheduled for a midlife crisis. And then the kids are having grandkids. I have my daughter. My son's getting married. Uh, maybe once, once I'm retired, then I'll finally be ready to start my, living my faith. And I've heard the excuse always, always through. And yet I think the bias, the default setting that Jesus has, is that he tells us to get up, and then he starts us on the path. There's tons of examples in scripture. You know, the woman at the well, she got up because she experienced the living water. And then she went and took a series of classes on how to do evangelism. <laughs> Got her MDiv, uh, was an intern for a while. No, she immediately goes back and gets a whole stinking village of people who never wanted to talk to her anyways to come check this deal out. Uh, and there's example after example of that. I think in artisan's history as a church, uh, we're now a little over two years old. And there were things when we were starting up that it would have been great if they were fully prepared, if everything was in place. In fact, uh, we had lots of counsel and, and even some pressure uh, to get some things in place. Um, maybe you've noticed in the last four or five weeks, we, we launched this sort of small groups deal uh, we call them connection groups, and we're going to add growth groups to them in, in January. Well, supposedly, as a church, a new church starting up, it is crucial that you have those in place. <laughs> we did not. It's been two years. Partly the staff had had some bad experiences with small group stuff, and we just let it go away for a while. Because we figured, and I think rightfully so, that we'll figure it out along the way. It's more important to get this thing going. Children's ministry is another great example. When we started out, there was people that wanted us to have sort of a Nickelodeon daycare style, you know, split the family up as soon as they come through the door, uh, and then wonder why kids leave church when they turn 18. I've given away my bias there. Uh, and we said, you know what, we're just going to wing it for a while, try some things. We're like on our fourth iteration. I think we're finally figuring some things out that are, that are going to stick. But how silly would it have been because we didn't have small groups or children's ministry or, or pick your thing to just keep waiting. You know, maybe 2008, that'll be a good year to finally start a church. And all the lives that would not have been touched that really didn't care a whole lot about children's ministry or small groups. Or... In fact, this fall, when we launched uh, our morning worship experiment, which for the most part is going very well, except when you have a few inches of snow, and it's not so good, but so it brings out a bigger crowd at night. No, uh, we were really down to the wire, deciding whether we should do that or not. That we knew God wanted us at some point to do something like that to expand and multiply what was going on, but there was a, a question mark: Are we really ready? And at one of our staff meetings, uh, someone said it. I'll I'll take credit. Um, I get accused of doing that. Well, it's because it's true. Uh, now, one of us said, and it got all worked around, that, you know what? I bet if we launch a morning worship service, and even if it is all kind of clunky and bizarre and not working right the first week, by week three, I bet we'll have it figured out. And sure enough, 
Well, week three, we just about had it figured out. But imagine if we just were always preparing as a church. And I don't think it's hard to imagine that as Christians, if we're always preparing, never going, that that's a serious problem. The Apostle Paul, writing to the churches in Rome, says some really powerful words. Now Paul is on the other side of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. John, as he sits in prison, doesn't yet know what's going on. But Paul knows. But Paul is also writing from prison as he writes the book of the letter to the Roman churches. To the churches who are in the shadow of the empire. To churches who are experiencing some persecution already, though it will get far worse in the coming years and decades. To people who he's challenging how to live this life in the way of Jesus in a way that's going somewhere, that's fully alive, that's, that's awake. And here's what he says to them. In Romans chapter 13, you can just follow along. Verse 11 and 12. He says, besides this, you know what time it is, how it is now the moment for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we became believers. Stop there for a moment. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Salvation is nearer now than when we became believers. See, I thought the church always taught that salvation is when you just wake up. It's that one time event. It's that crisis moment. But here Paul is describing something that seems to also have a journey to it that goes somewhere. And the fulfillment of that salvation should be getting nearer. That the kingdom of God should be showing up in more powerful ways in our life, through our lives, and in the world. And he says, For salvation is nearer to us now than when we became believers. The night is far gone, and the day is near. Let us then lay aside the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. It's a really cool picture to me of this journey of waking up and experiencing Christ's salvation but then having a sense that it's going somewhere also and the title is, is not just get up and travel it's get up and travel light to not be burdened to not take it too slow to not be distracted and that imagery of the armor of light I think is just so perfect where it describes a life that is infused with the light of Christ and that can go out into the world protected and cared for, but not burdened, not weighed down. And there's going to be tons of stuff to figure out along the way, but it would be far better to figure them out along the way than to figure them out and never actually get on the way. Get up. Travel light. Let's pray.
God, we thank you for, for your word that challenges us, that doesn't let us be comfortable with just lying there in bed, that doesn't let us be comfortable with never going anywhere with our faith. Whether we've been a Christian for years or we're even exploring faith for the first time, you are not impressed by our endless preparing. But you are gracious, and it is your good pleasure to move in our lives as we move and put one foot in front of the other. So my prayer tonight for each person here and those listening is that first we would, each and every one of us, get up. That if there's ignorance, that your truth would break through and show us there's so much more to life starting now and forever. And that you are clear that you call us to something greater than ourselves. And so take care of the ignorance. If we're lazy, God, oh, just fill us with your spirit. Fill us with a zeal so that laziness is not an option. And if we're fearful, let your perfect love cast out all fear. And perhaps there's some who have never made a decision to, to follow you, Jesus. And I pray that all those things would be taken care of at least enough tonight so they could start on that journey. But most of all, God, we pray that through Christ, you will take care of the damage that holds each of us back. That apart from your grace, we cannot fix on our own. We are incapable of getting up except for what you did on the cross, paying the price for our sins, dying, lying in the tomb for three days until of your own volition, your perfect holy will, you said to your own life, Get up. Thank you that we can join with that life and be fully alive as well. And for those who may have been a Christian for a while, have been following you or attempting to or considering it, or let us not go through life in our pajamas, never actually getting out the door never actually taking this winter journey that is sometimes cold, is sometimes dark, is often just a slog and, and a mess. But we take your light with us and it guides us and warms us and shows the way. And for any here that have been getting ready, would you please get them out the door? putting one foot in front of the other and walking the path that you have for them. Let none of us just hit the snooze button. But especially this season, as we find our way towards Christmas, let us be challenged by your entry into the world to wake up a world that was asleep and dead and to give us a a path and a way to go. And your strength and power and light 
to guide us on the way. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. There's no kind of clever application. There's not three things you can do this week that's going to fix something. Uh, you know. This is one of those foundational truths. You know, the last series we did, Life 2.0, talked about all these practical areas of marriage and, and family and friendship and work and play. Crucial stuff. The Bible speaks to that. But honestly, none of that matters to someone who's stuck in bed and not going anywhere. And so I hope that folks will respond. And there's a few ways you may choose to respond tonight. Each and every week, we always have the Lord's table. And one of the metaphors is of sustenance, of strength of the journey as we tear the bread, dip it in the wine or the juice, symbolizing Christ's broken body and shed blood on our behalf, that by faith we receive that, and that sustains us. But also it's sometimes helpful to, to spend time in prayer, to ask those questions like John asks, is this Jesus the one? And what could he mean in my life? And for some, it is very helpful to ask that question, to pray a bit with someone else. And there will never be a safer setting, in my opinion, than amongst the friends at Artisan. You will never have people more on your side than the pastors and people here that if you want to ask those questions or take that step of faith away from ignorance and laziness and fear and damage towards truth and love, and healing. We'd love to have that conversation with you. And in fact, during this whole series, we have this prayer station sort of set up over here, a place to kneel if you'd like. Uh, we're going to dim the lights here in a moment to kind of help that not be quite so awkward. And there's some chairs here as well. I'm just going to go hang out over there and sit there. If someone wants to pray, if you want to make that decision to start following Christ, if there's damage in your life that you just want to unburden to another human soul and ask, can God take care of this also? That may be a way for you to respond as well. And so however God leads you tonight, uh, get up. Don't sit on your hands. Move. And he'll guide and direct you. Amen? The table is open. as a place of prayer. Respond as God leads.